Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss all that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I'm your host for this episode, Eric, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Sean. Hello, everybody. So in this episode, we will be discussing a number of creepy and unexplained stories, all from British Columbia, Canada. The idea for this episode came to us from Sarah, one of our Tier 3 preferred patrons over on Patreon. As a preferred patron, Sarah had the opportunity to tell us what she wanted to hear in an episode, and she let us know all about the strange events that happen in her corner of the world, British Columbia. British Columbia seems to have the trinity of strange and unexplained from UFOs and paranormal hauntings and even its own cryptid. So it's definitely something that we were interested in covering. So big thanks for Sarah for not only supporting the podcast, but for also giving us this pretty great and creepy idea. Yeah, so there's certainly a ton, ton of material um, that comes from Vancouver. Just about anything you can think of that fits the criteria for being covered in Strange Matters podcast has happened in Vancouver. So murder, mystery, the works, just about everything like that. And, you know, it's definitely a beautiful and historic city for sure, but um, as is the case in many locations, there is a dark underbelly of intrigue that runs through Vancouver in particular. And many of the mysteries are likely hearsay, but a lot of them are certainly supported by a substantial amount of evidence and independent reports. It's really become an area that is almost supportive and encouraging of people's interest in the paranormal, as I know it has a lot of uh, tourist base as a result of some of the events that have occurred there. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people are more open to the weird, maybe just because there's so much of it going on there than compared to other places. So we're just going to jump right into the first topic of this episode, and that is going to be talking about some of the alien and UFO activity around the area of British Columbia. So this region has been known as a hotbed for UFO activity for many years now. Sightings of UFOs and unexplained lights in the sky have caused the region to become a place where many UFO enthusiasts pay close attention to just because of the high number of sightings and reports. So Vancouver, which is a city in British Columbia, has the highest rate of UFO sightings of any Canadian city, according to a survey several years ago. In the year 2012 alone, there were over 2,000 sightings of UFOs and unexplained phenomenon in the skies of Canada, but this is believed to be an anomaly, mostly brought on by the hype of the rapture and the end-of-the-world talk that was going on that year. So the next year, in 2013, there were a little over 1,000 sightings in Canada, with 300 coming from British Columbia itself. Now, only 2% of these UFO reports were what is considered the close encounters, so that's basically your direct contact, interactions, or abduction scenarios with extraterrestrials. So this means that the vast majority of these reports were people who have claimed to see unexplained lights or unidentified craft up in the sky. The strange sightings have been reported in the area for over a century now. As far back as 1912, there was a report of a person who said that they remembered as a young child of a craft that looks similar to what a modern helicopter looks like with a glass cabin that landed in the family farm. And this man, who was a child then, remembered seeing little, what he called spacemen, who had short appendages and they didn't have any knees or elbows, and they were seen getting out of the craft and exploring around. Another time in the late 1930s in Burnaby in British Columbia, 
three young boys saw two fireballs streaking across the sky, flying at a low altitude parallel to the ground. And suddenly the two fireballs changed direction and went straight up into the sky at 90 degrees, flying up into the sky to the point where they could no longer be seen. One of the men said on remembering that moment that it looks similar to a maneuver that a modern jet or guided rocket might be able to pull off. But of course, none of those things existed back at that time in the 30s. And he could not give an explanation for what they saw that day. So definitely not your uh, meteorite that was just mistaken for a UFO or anything like that. Yeah. Just because of the crazy maneuvers they were pulling. Yeah, usually they don't go against gravity at 90 (laughs) degrees. So definitely something weird going on there. Yeah, and in 1954, the United States Air Force actually launched an investigation into UFO sightings, and they called it Project Blue Book. And the results were declassified in 2004. By the time the investigations were halted in 1970, they had looked into 12,000 UFO sightings. And most of these were explained rationally as natural phenomena. So, Basically, people just see something up in the sky, they can't identify it, and they report it as a UFO, even though it just turns out to be uh, a military aircraft or uh, uh, an animal of some sort or something like that. Or Venus reflected off swamp gas. Sure, yeah, that that happens too. Um, But there were a small percentage of incidents that remained unexplained, one of which occurred in White Rock Lake in March of 1959. And two men spotted something unusual over the lake. It was cylindrical in shape and dime-sized from their perspective. It was aluminum in color, and it kind of hovered over the lake for a while, and then it began to move in a straight line over the lake northward for about 10 seconds before completely vanishing. Yeah, so that's, I mean, 1959, you'd think that, you know, they would know what a helicopter is by that time, and that's not what they described. Right, and pretty much I can imagine, I mean, I can't, you know, state this as fact, but I can imagine this is before a lot of the UFO craze had really begun to catch on across the country. So another notable early sighting happened back in 1974 when a young 11-year-old boy snapped a photo of something in the sky. So sixth grader David Knutson was in his house in Surrey when he saw something strange out of his apartment window. What he saw was some type of UFO, a round silver object, that made a buzzing noise flying in the sky above his apartment. He took a picture with the first photo in a 20-picture roll he'd just gotten for his birthday, and though he was excited to see what kind of shot he got, his father told him that he wouldn't get the roll developed until he had used all the pictures up. So it ended up being a 10-day wait from when David first took the picture before he actually saw how it turned out. So David's father said about getting the picture developed, I wasn't that excited, honestly. You know how kids are. I really didn't believe it, but then I saw the picture and it was so good. I remember kind of being in a scenario like this as a young boy and basically, you know, getting a new disposable camera and wanting to get the first picture I took developed. And naturally, my parents gave me the same response. You got to wait until all the film is gone. So I just took a lot more pictures of random stuff and my film was ready to be developed by the end of the day. And, you know, obviously, none of the pictures that I ever took were any good. um, But Although, you know, by today's standards, the picture that Knutson took would probably be questionable at best. But in that day, actually, it wound up being published in some newspapers and causing a pretty big stir. Right. And, I mean, you can look at the picture, you know, by today's standards, it's 
not terribly convincing, but, you know, obviously the child swore up and down that, you know, he didn't mess with the photograph in any way. Um, and again, it caused a pretty big stir in the area. So, yeah. So, I mean, now we can say the photo itself isn't very detailed, but then it could just be because of the limitations of the camera, uh, back in the day. But I mean, at least to the point where you can't see like any strings or anything hovering down. So, and then, you know, David's still not said it was a hoax or anything. So he still believes in what he, what he saw. So just as with David's statement, when he originally snapped the photo, so the picture just shows a circular looking object just floating in the sky, basically your typical flying saucer. And David swore that the photo was authentic and said, it wasn't no round airplane. I know that. Two days before David's photo was taken, a Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer reported that he had seen his own unidentified flying object that roared like a jet aircraft overhead. Um, So though they were in the same area two days apart, whether these two flying objects were related are unknown. I think, you know, to suggest that the two objects were related seems a little unlikely just based solely on the buzz that David reported compared with the roar that the officer heard. Um, Although, you know, if these were genuine, like, extraterrestrial crafts, then who knows what sort of, like, technology they have. Um, But it it could, you know, very well have been the same craft in all reality. Right. That's true. So, I mean, over the decades, this area, now known as the Surrey Corridor, has been a hotspot for UFO activity. Consistent number of reports come from that area each year, though they do have a bit of a variety in terms of descriptions of what people see. So you have some that are just hovering or unexplained lights in the sky, and then you also have daytime sightings of strange aircraft circling or flying by. So it would seem just from the pretty alarming amount of reports and variety in the description that something strange is going on in the sky. So this area, including specifically around Bear Creek Park in Newton, also has a high number of visitation or abduction claims over the years. So there's one woman named Corina Sables who lives in Kelowna, British Columbia, and she claims to have suffered firsthand from extraterrestrials. Corina says that both her and her family have been taken multiple times by aliens for unknown reasons. In a recent interview, Karina says about being an abductee, on a personal level, to be an abductee means that from early childhood, my children and I have been taken many times against our will and had our bodies, minds, and spirits raped. For all of us, it began between four and five years of age. Then once a teenager, the visitations become more frequent, taking DNA material from us. It seems to be going from generation to generation. To this day, we still have unwanted visitations. My personal belief is that there are many different species of aliens, and like us humans, there are benevolent ones and also malevolent ones. For us, unfortunately, the greys are the ones that have been dealing with us. The greys have no emotions, so they are not affected by how much pain and trauma they deliver. They are like robots who simply come to do their job and then leave. It's pretty dark. I know a lot of people claim to have been abducted by aliens. However, it's not often that you hear about someone that is you know perpetually being taken by these aliens and experimented on um 
and it seems strange simply kind of like from a scientific perspective if you were collecting data like dna you would want to collect from a large sample size to eliminate like variability and stuff like that however i suppose if they are tagging the individual and following them over the course of their lifetime for data collection then it would be a little bit more plausible kind of like how we tag sharks in the ocean and then you know follow them over the course of their lifetime um and then you know you always have to grapple with the possibility that she's just having like recurrent nightmares or something like that it's kind of hard to interpret but obviously for this person it's very real to her and her family and i know that with other people who have been abducted by aliens before they always kind of or they frequently have some sort of you know a mark on their body mm-hmm. that represents a surgical procedure that the aliens performed on them or something like that yeah I mean, that is interesting. I did kind of have a similar thought, uh, I mean, a while back when we first started kind of looking at abduction cases, and you hear these people who are taken multiple times, and I'd be like, oh, what are the chances of that? But then kind of as just as you said, we as humans do the same thing, the species we track, that, you know, we put a chip in them and then follow them throughout their life and, you know, take different samples. So perhaps, you know, higher species or toying or doing the same thing to, to us, basically. Yeah, I can imagine a, a shark or an ape or something feeling similarly about us. Yeah, because like, it's going down, taking them from their homes. They don't have no right. idea what's going on. Right. So that is, that is pretty creepy to think of. So, I mean, as far as abductions go, Corinna is not alone, as there are many others in Canada who also claim to be victims of abduction. Corinna herself is part of a support group in Kelowna for abductees, which has over 10 people in it just for that area alone. So it would seem that sightings and discussion of UFOs will remain to be a popular topic throughout Canada, as a high number of reports have remained pretty much consistent over the recent years. Chris Rutkowski is a UFO researcher living in Winnipeg and helps run the Canadian UFO survey, which has been going on since 1989. He states that many of the reports they get can actually be explained, and only about 12% of the reports that they get uh, do they classify as unexplained. Rutkowski has said, We do know that the UFO reports continue to be made in growing numbers every year, and this is just indicative that people are paying attention to what is in the sky. They're not just looking down at their cell phones. Now, it's worth you know discussing that just because... 12% of the reports are unexplained doesn't mean that 12% of the reports are true alien activity. That's true. Because, I mean, there's a lot of, I can, I mean, can you imagine retrospectively looking back on one of these events that's been reported by a person, maybe even anonymously and trying to investigate it? It just seems like a almost impossible task to do, but mm-hmm. somehow they've determined that 88% of them are most likely reported to like a jet. So they go to the U S air force and they say, okay, where are we all flying planes in this area at the time, at this time, you know, stuff like that. Or look up shooting stars or satellite information or something just right. to see if there's anything going on overhead where these people report their location and what time of day and see if there's anything going on that they can explain. Yeah. So I'm actually pretty impressed that 88% of it's actually explained so the 12%, I'd probably say it's a much smaller percentage of that that's actually like true extraterrestrial activity. Yeah. 
it's plus you never know who's just making up stories so you're always going to get a few hoaxes along with the uh the real stuff exactly yeah so if they're making if if people are calling in and completely falsifying falsifying information then that automatically goes into that 12 percent. yeah that's true so yeah, so it is thought in the recent report that the rising number of UFO sightings could be linked to several more down-to-earth things, such as the increased number of people buying drones and just flying them around, um, along with other things like you know laser pointers or strobe lights that people attach to their houses. Rutkowski also suggests that people are becoming more open and accepting of talks of UFOs and aliens also in Canada, saying people are more interested... I think other people will talk to each other at a party or in a school university, and these are the types of topics people are interested in. Space is so much in the public eye, I think people are paying a little more attention to the possibility that we are not alone. And that's probably something important, because I think a lot of people know that there's a stigma around people who report basically anything unknown, alien, paranormal, cryptids, whatever, where... Even if you see something that you can't explain, a lot of people probably won't go around telling people because they're afraid of being labeled, you know, a nut or, you know, just crazy or trying to get attention. So it's good that it seems in this area, at least in Canada, British Columbia, that it's more acceptable to, you know, talk about these type of things without being worried about being labeled, um, you know, a crazy person or something. But it also kind of gives rise to a sort of fad mentality. So everybody wants to be, or especially like people in high school and maybe college, they always want to be the person that is responsible for citing and reporting the latest and greatest UFO. That's true. Um, But, you know, at the same time, it does, I can see what he was saying earlier. More people are looking up at the sky with an inquisitive attitude, kind of looking for these things, so. Yeah, the 2015 Canadian UFO report had this to say in its conclusion. The increase in the number of UFO reports with time likely does not have a simple explanation. It could be related to a growing awareness within the general population that there are agencies which collect UFO reports. It could be that there really are more UFOs physically present in the sky. It could be that the collection of UFO data is becoming more efficient. It could be that there are more private websites allowing or inviting people to report their UFO sightings. While media have been noted as playing a definite role in UFO waves, media coverage of UFO reports has significantly declined over the past decade while the number of reports has risen. Perhaps a cultural factor is at work as well, where aliens and UFOs are now well entrenched within the societal mindset and are as accepted as more probable than fiction. So, as you can imagine, this is just a very small portion of the UFO sightings and extraterrestrial reports that have come from Vancouver, B.C. Um, But in order to make room for some of the other strange things that have happened um, or been reported come out of Vancouver, we're going to go ahead and move on to some of the reported hauntings in the area. So, one of the most well-known hotspots in BC is known as Riverview Mental Institution, and this isn't just your run-of-the-mill mental institution. It's an abandoned, insane asylum with a rich history and a strong reputation. So the structure itself is already quite worn down today and almost safe, almost unsafe to be in due to a loss of structural integrity. 
However, the location has been used as a setting in a number of well-known films and TV shows, including Watchmen, which is personally one of my favorites, and also The X-Files. And it's the mental institution started off in 1913, having a mere 350 male patients, but by the 1950s, it contained nearly 4.5 thousand mental health patients as new buildings began to be constructed and added to the grounds. Yeah, so the, the West Lawn Pavilion, which was the first major building of Riverview, opened in 1913, and its first occupants included some of the most psychotically disturbed male patients in the area, some of whom had committed violent acts and were not fit to live among the public. So due to the nature of these who were initially kept there, along with tales and rumors of some nasty and disturbing crimes and even deaths committed in its walls, has caused some to believe that spirits as evil and twisted as the men who were treated there still roam around. And today these stories make the West Lawn Pavilion the most popular building of Riverview for those brave enough to walk through it. I was reading online a, a personal account um, came from an individual who claimed to have been a janitor at the old facility, and he stated in an online post that, quote, it's 100% haunted, I'll never forget those times. Walking in the very top floor down this long hallway, doors on each side, which used to be for patients. That floor hadn't been used for years, no one up there except me, but I always heard sounds like snickering, laughing, whispering, and the underground tunnels, or whatever they were called, that went between the buildings. Creepiest stuff ever, especially when you're alone. I would go through those so fast, I would always hear noises, but didn't dare look back, just kept walking. Yeah, so I would say as far as creepy places go, abandoned mental asylums probably rank pretty high on the list, if not the very top, regardless of any paranormal or supernatural elements to it. Many people who have taken tours or just walked through the grounds have said that they experienced feelings of unease or just fright, even during the daytime. Since it has treated thousands of people through the years and a number of people have died there, has led many to claim that some spirits still wander the grounds and hallways of the large institution, perhaps still confused and conflicted in death as they were in life. Yeah, kind of going back to what you first said, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, these days mental health facilities are pretty straight edge. I mean, it's not like the old days when inmates or patients or whatever you want to call them had to be beaten into submission at times and basically manhandled to get them to behave. That doesn't really happen as much these days. Mm -hmm. Back in the day before all the laws and regulations came about, you know, people were tortured. People were giving, being given insulin um, as a treatment to put them into like a basically put them into a coma to see if they could manage their symptoms that way. There are all sorts of strange experimental treatments being performed on these patients that, you know, I can imagine it just tortured people and that can sort of explain why there's so many uh, disturbed souls roaming the hallways. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure a few of the treatments they were trying to do actually either made things worse, if not just straight up killed people. Oh yeah, definitely. I don't, I have no doubt. And so the facility actually officially closed down in 2012. However, it's still claimed to be haunted by, you know, obviously former residents and employees. And witnesses claim to hear voices and hear footsteps. 
and then to see shadowy figures, strange lights, and objects that move by themselves. Others claim to have been poked, touched, or felt that they were being watched by some sort of unseen apparition. And as previously claimed, the tunnels were supposed to have been especially haunted. So, you know, this is just a, a few of the things that have happened to people in Riverview Mental Institution. So the second probably, in my opinion, most notorious haunted site in B.C. is Dead Man's Island. This is one of the most haunted islands in the entire continent of North America. And the Squamish people call it the Island of Dead Men. And it said there was a fierce battle that occurred on this island long ago in which northern and southern people fought over claims to the island. The southern nation captured and held as hostage 200 women, children, and elders. The northern territory decided to send 200 of their young male warriors in exchange. However, once the transaction took place, the young warriors were cut down on the spot. Yeah, so according to the native legends, after the massacre of the northern tribe warriors, mysterious what were called flaming flowers grew in the spots where the 200 corpses lay on the ground. So scared and disturbed at the sight of these unusual flowers, the southern tribe fled the island and left it abandoned, claiming it was a cursed place now filled with black magic due to the slaughter. The author E. Pauline Johnson wrote about this massacre, writing, In the morning, the southern tribes found the spot where they fell people filled with flaming fire flowers. Dread terror seized upon them. In the depths of the undergrowth on Deadman's Island, there blossomed a flower of flaming beauty. But somewhere down in the sanctuary of its petals pulsed the heart's blood of many and valiant men. So from this point on, the island's reputation would begin to spread, and it would forever be known as Dead Man's Island. So that sort of spawned the initial reports of hauntings and strange occurrences, and all sort of grew onward from there. And in the 1860s, the government tried to sell the island to a man by the name of John Morton. So naturally, John wanted to inspect the island before purchasing it from the government, so he set out in a rowboat to kind of give the land a, a look over and kind of explore things. And on the island, he found hundreds of cedar boxes that were scattered among the foliage and the branches of some of the trees. As he reached up to pull down one of the boxes to inspect its contents, it disintegrated and human bones fell out of the box onto his head. And so unknown to Morton and basically everyone else at the time, the island had been used by the Squamish tribe as a burial grounds, placing bodies of their fallen ones within these cedar coffins that they then lodged between the branches of the ancient trees that grew on the island. So later on, these coffins would be removed by European settlers who moved the remains off the island and reportedly buried them underground, as was the tradition of the white settlers in the area. So even after this time, though, there were reports of things like ghosts, specters, and dancing orbs that were seen on the island at night, causing many of the new locals in the area who were looking out and seeing these to claim that the island was haunted and was to be avoided as much as possible. Another interesting fact about Dead Man's Island in the 1890s, when smallpox was at its peak in Vancouver, Dead Man's Island was used as a pest house where they would send infected individuals to the island 
to quarantine them from the rest of civilization. If they got better, they would leave the island and come home. If not, they simply stayed. Finally, between 1899 and 1930, the island was the source of a dispute where the federal government actually leased the land to an American named Theodore Ludgate so that he may use it for logging. The locals in Vancouver were outraged as they believed this land belonged to them. When Ludgate and his men showed up on the island to begin cutting down trees, they were promptly arrested by the mayor and his militia of policemen. The dispute went on for years, and in 1909, the police occupied the island overnight to keep the loggers at bay. As the story goes, they were accompanied by the sounds of rattling bones and shrieking skeletons that threatened anyone who dared cut down a tree. In 1942, the island became a naval yard, and as such, most of the supernatural reports from then on were coming from the inhabiting sailors. Several recount hearing footsteps and furniture moving around in buildings when no one was there. Still more peculiar, there are frequent reports of a strange glow that illuminates the woods at night that sometimes sharpens into a human form. Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of stories coming from these sailors and just people who are posted there throughout the years. There's reportedly a tale of a warehouse that was briefly turned into like a jail of sort. Um, someone had committed a crime, probably stole something, uh, one of the sailors, and so he was put in there. And then when they came back to find him, he was reportedly, he killed himself by hanging. And from that point on, people started to see a ghost or hear things from that warehouse building that they think is the spirit of the man who killed himself. And then you have a whole bunch of other stories of people who were stationed there overnight and they were by themselves, but then they started hearing conversations or, as you mentioned earlier, like things being moved around in the buildings they were staying at. And then when they radioed back saying, you know, who else is here with me? They were told there's nobody else there. And then they would go investigate the house or the building, and there was no one there. But they swore they heard something before that. I was reading like four or five of these stories that were kind of all similar of these people there by themselves, but then they're hearing things like there were other people there, but there wasn't, and they just can't explain what was going on in those buildings. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. I can imagine, um, you know, all of this stuff sort of plays together to give. Dead Man's Island, a really checkered history. And as you can imagine, there are countless human remains buried on the island. So there were those of the Indians who died there, the smallpox victims, and even those of the people who likely you know squatted on the island for many years because they didn't have anywhere else to live, and much more. And that being said, there are claims that the Indian remains were actually moved to a nearby cemetery um, however, it's thought that this is likely not true, and all that remains now are poorly marked grave sites in the paranormal activities that pervade the island. This was definitely a creepy, you can just imagine any isolated island with a history like that, there's going to be plenty of cases, and with some strong claims as to why there are something weird going on there, some type of paranormal activity or energy that's just surrounding that island. It's interesting. It makes me kind of think of a TV show that I've been a big fan of called Alone. And it's actually several of the seasons were, I think season one and three or one and four were based on Cougar Island in mm -hmm. Vancouver, BC. And I just can't imagine, I mean, basically for the TV show, they go out 
onto this island and camp and survive for as long as possible completely by themselves. And I just can't imagine how completely terrifying that would be, um, especially given Vancouver's reputation for all this sort of strange paranormal activity. Especially something called Dead Man's Island. Yeah. Yeah. If you (laughs) read the history on that, I I don't know, take a lot of money to convince me to go live there by myself for a while. Definitely. Uh, So now we talked about some of the UFO and hauntings of British Columbia and we're going to segue into the next portion where we talk about a few cryptids of the area. So the region of British Columbia is also home to a popular cryptid all of its own, the Ogopogo. So affectionately called the Canadian Loch Ness Monster, the Ogopogo is a giant serpent or snake-like monster that lives in Okanagan Lake in British Columbia. The lake itself is 79 miles long, 2.5 miles wide, and at its deepest points, uh, around 1,000 feet deep. The Ogopogo was first reported centuries ago by the First Nations people of the area as far back as the 1800s. The Ogopogo is described as a 50 to 60 foot long serpent-like monster, two feet in diameter, with a horse or goat-looking like head. The first records of a beast in the waters of Okanagan Lake date back to 1872, which actually predates the Loch Ness Monster by seven years. A possible origin of the Ogopogo goes back even further than that into the 1700s, where the Okanagan Indians had a legend about a sea creature called the Na'at, which means the snake of the water. This creature was so feared that the natives of the time would sacrifice an animal in the lake before they would cross in canoes. In 1914, a group of Nicola Valley Indians discovered the corpse of a strange animal on the lake shore. The creature was reportedly bluish-gray in color, six feet long, had a tail, two flippers, and weighed at least 400 pounds. People who believe in the legend think that this creature could be a child or juvenile version of a fully-grown Ogopogo. A more modern explanation was that this creature seems to match the description of something like a manatee, but if that's the case, no one can explain how a manatee would even show up in the lake at that time either. That's a little strange. You come up with one solution to a mystery, and you create another mystery in and of itself. So Yeah. Because I don't think manatees generally inhabit lakes of of this sort no they're usually chilling around florida right (laughs) that's pretty that's a long swim for a manatee at least that's where i'd be if i were a manatee so one of the earliest modern reports came in 1926 when a number of people spotted something strange at okanagan mission beach it is said that around 30 cars full of people who were stopped at the road at the time all supposedly witnessed a huge serpent-like monster creature swimming along the surface of the water. Yeah, it's kind of hard to get 30 cars full of people to all agree to lie about seeing yeah. a monster. So, that's, I don't know, it makes it kind of hard to argue with. A similar report that I actually came across in 1949, there was a big party boat with a bunch of people on it, and they're partying and having a good time, and all of a sudden they see a creature in the water from about 100 feet away, I'm trying to think 100 feet, that's like 30 yards on a football field. So that's not far at all. You can see it in pretty good detail. Um, Anyway, so the creature was partially submerged in the water with its head 
underwater and had a horizontal forked tail, kind of like what you would see on a whale. However, it didn't move like a whale. It actually moved more like a sea serpent and kind of like an oscillating movement. Somewhere side to side instead of up and down. Like exactly. Whale. Which doesn't really seem to fit with the horizontal tail thing. But, you know, anyways, the portion of the creature that was above the surface was estimated 30 feet long with dark, smooth, kind of slimy-like skin. So I guess, you know, if we're assuming about half of it was submerged, then that would make sense that it'd be about 50 to 60 feet long. Right, so. yeah. And I mean, even there's not... You can imagine a lake like this. It's I mean, it's not a small lake, but it's not massive either. Where you can see it hiding this kind of serpent-like creature, but it's not going to hide like a sixty-foot whale. That's going to be, you know, a lot of people would notice that. So. Right, and plus the whales have to come to the surface to get air because they're mammals. Yes, mammals because they're mammals. Yeah, so nice. Yeah, <laughs> not a biologist. So. <laughs> So in 1968, a man named Art Folden was driving along the lake with his wife when he noticed something large and lifelike moving in the water. So he pulled over and quickly set up his camera and started filming at what he saw. So Art actually didn't release the footage for quite some time as he feared that he would be ridiculed by people if they thought he believed in a folklore legend. It wasn't until two years had passed that Art finally put out the footage, convinced by his brother-in-law. And this footage does show, it's kind of grainy and it's kind of off into the distance, but it does look like something is moving through the water. Now, modern computer analysis does conclude that whatever is in the footage is a solid object. But those seeking to debunk the Ogopogo more often believe that the animal in the footage is a much smaller creature than what Art claimed he was seeing. So they think that it was nothing more than a beaver that was swimming rather than a huge sea serpent. So now we've talked a little bit about the history of the Ogopogo. There are a number of theories and explanations. So one possible explanation for the Ogopogo's existence is that, similar to that of the Loch Ness Monster, it could be a leftover of an extinct species. Some say that this monster could be a plesiosaur that somehow survived from the Cretaceous period. Perhaps even a group of them, which has survived in an isolated area through the years. Cryptozoologist Carl Shucker believes that Ogopogo could be a relative of primitive serpentine species or a descendant from a group like the Basilosaurus. Just as with many other cryptids, another common explanation is that the Ogopogo is just a case of mistaken identity. So rather than being a 60-foot sea serpent roaming Lake Okanagan, people are seeing other actual established animals instead. So mistakes are either made from a long distance, or people have obstructed view or simply over-imagination, and people manage to see and make out part of a known real animal, like a beaver or something, but then they just fill in the rest with their mind and imagination. The Ogopogo does have a number of things going for it in terms of plausibility, though such as reports and sightings of it dating back, you know, hundreds of years, as well as a number of videos and photographs of the lake showing what some believe may be in Ogopogo. But still to this day, there remains no definitive physical evidence of its existence. So for the time being, it will continue on just being another legendary creature. 
And so moving along the same thread in terms of cryptids that BC is known for, um, while the Sasquatch does not originally come from the BC area in terms of some of its earliest reports, um, in 2012, probably some of the most intriguing footage of a Sasquatch was filmed in BC, at least that I personally have ever seen. Um, Still pretty debatable, um, but interesting nonetheless. So it was captured by a biologist named Miles Lamont. The footage basically shows a lone figure moving up a snow-covered slope while Lamont records from a peak a good distance off. Many people question the validity of this recording, naturally, as there's little to confirm that it is in fact a Sasquatch, other than the fact that they are out literally in the middle of nowhere, and the odds of encountering encountering another hiker seem small. The figure does not appear to have any gear or a pack with them, and it's hiking up a steep slope for an unknown purpose, because it doesn't really make sense, given where he is, that he would be climbing up this particular slope. Oddly, it also appears to be moving a little bit faster than a normal human would be able to in those conditions. There was, however, a man known as Ridgewater Pete who came forward later claiming to have been hiking in the area around about the time that the footage was recorded. However, um, doing a little more investigation on it, they determined that the footage was taken two weeks before Pete was in the area. So the mystery remains unsolved at this point in time. Yeah. So British Columbia actually has a high number of Sasquatch reports and potential sightings. Some evidence or clues goes back hundreds of years from indigenous records and paintings of beasts that resemble Sasquatch, as well as more contemporary eyewitness reports, audio and video files, and pictures of footprints. Even as far back as 1955, a man named William Rowe claimed to have spotted the creature, as he described. Its arms were much thicker than a man's arms and longer, reaching almost to its knees. Its feet were broader proportionally than a man's. Over the years, there have been dozens of similar accounts of other people who have spotted an unusual and mysterious creature in the mountains of British Columbia. As a quick aside, for those who are fans of Bigfoot and Sasquatch and the legends surrounding them, you'll be happy to hear that we are actually in the works of researching and putting together an in-depth episode on the topic. So make sure to stay tuned in. Also, if you have your own personal experiences, sightings, or just little pieces of information about Bigfoot or Sasquatch or similar creatures that you like us to know about, please write into us and let us know. So to wrap up the episode, I guess the final um, thing we'll touch on briefly with British Columbia is... Uh, obviously has a rich history in murders as well as all these other strange sort of paranormal activity. And, you know, obviously there's a number of different murders that have come from the area. One of the most interesting to me came in 2007. And this was a young girl who was on vacation wandering the provincial park of Jebediah Island in the Strait of Georgia when she stumbled upon something that she was not expecting to find a sneaker with a severed foot stuffed inside of it. Since this initial find in 2007, 10 more feet have been found in the strait. No other body parts, just multiple feet. Some some are even pairs that 
belong to the same individual. There's a little other information to investigate these feet, unfortunately. Um, This mystery was covered worldwide by various media outlets, and there have been numerous theories, you know, that it could be tsunami victims, um, murder victims, or even suicides, but without more details, it's kind of hard to determine the true cause of this anomaly. Uh, A couple have been tracked back to suicides that did occur from individuals jumping off a bridge farther up the strait. However, where the others come from and how they got separated from their owners is difficult to say. Yes, I've read a number of different cases about this. It's kind of like a phenomenon where you have groups of water where just severed foots or parts of bodies are found. And though the you know nature of where these the bodies came from in the first place, um, one theory that I've read about is that it's kind of due to either the breakdown of the body or you know, the fish or the wildlife in the water as they eat the body, just naturally the feet kind of break away or different body parts break away and they just, the smaller ones get washed further away. So that's why I've read that, you know, it could be a potential theory to this is that maybe some of these people just jumped or all of them jumped. Maybe a few of them are people who got murdered and their bodies dumped there. And then basically the wildlife and the the waters there consumed everything but the feet, and they were managed to get washed ashore until they were found. Either way, basically no matter how you slice it or what sort of conclusion you come to, this if you're on vacation, this is probably the last thing you would want to find if you're a little girl. Um, pretty disturbing to me for sure. Yeah, it's not the type of souvenir you want to take from a vacation. Not at all. And so with that, that wraps up this episode discussing a whole bunch of unexplained and creepy and disturbing activity, all coming from the same area, British Columbia. So big thanks to Sarah again for supporting the podcast and for giving us the idea to look into all these creepy little stories from British Columbia. Yeah, and as you can imagine, there's just a plethora of information on other strange things that come out of um, British Columbia. Again, very beautiful area, rich history, uh, great tourist site, but just so many strange, unexplained happenings coming from the area. Yes, really, whether you're interested in UFO and aliens or hauntings or cryptids or mysterious murders or deaths, uh, this area is just cram-packed full of them. It's got something for everybody. Yeah. And whales are mammals. I Googled it just to be sure. Okay. You heard it here first, people. Whales are mammals. Okay. All right. With that, we'll wrap up this episode of the Strange Matters podcast. If you have your own thoughts on some of the cases that we've covered in this episode, or if you have ideas or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to write to us at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, strangematterspodcast.com, where you can listen to, download, and comment on all of our episodes. You can also follow us on our social media accounts. So find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, be sure to leave us a rating and review. It really helps us to promote and improve the podcast. We do take people's feedback and review it very in-depth. So until next time, it's Strange Matters Podcast. Take care, everybody. See you.